Hey, what's up guys, Travis here. And if you've been following me or my story for any length of time, you know that I started a company called Guestio about a year and a half ago now. And one of the things that we are doing this year in 2022 is we're building a concierge program called the Fast Pass that allows you to get booked on top quality shows and platforms for the purpose of spreading awareness for your brand, grabbing attention, uh, growing your credibility, your authority, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you are listening to this right now and you are a seven figure plus entrepreneur and you have a budget to bring in traffic, attention, credibility, authority to your brand, then this might be a really great program for you. Just head over to travischapel.com slash 10K. Why 10K? Because we guarantee in this program that you're going to be able to speak in front of 10,000 people within 90 days. Okay, 10,000 people within 90 days. Imagine getting on a stage in front of 10,000 people to share your message, your story. That's exactly what we are doing inside of this program through virtual stages like podcasts or virtual events or YouTube channels or blogs. You name it, we are working with it, and we are trying to get you booked on those platforms. So travischapel.com slash 10x. There's a quick application there, and then right at the end of that application, it'll prompt you to set up a phone call where you'll jump on a call with me, and we'll talk through whether or not you're a great fit for this program. Please act fast on this. Do not wait because we are only taking on one or two clients a week due to uh, constraints with our team and the limited supply of high quality shows and platforms that are out there in the market. So if that's you and you're really wanting to explode your brand in 2022, head over to travischapel.com slash 10K, fill out the application, schedule a quick phone call, and you and I will chat really soon about whether or not this would be a great fit for you. Thanks, guys. Talk to you soon. Hey, this is Chris Voss, author of Never Split the Difference. And if you want to learn how to grow your network the right way, you should be listening to the Build Your Network podcast with my good friend, Travis Chappell. Welcome back to the show. I believe that who you know is more important than what you know. If you agree, then keep on listening for tips on how to cultivate meaningful connections the right way. If you disagree, then tune in anyway to let me prove you wrong with my journey. My name is Travis Chapel, and this is the Build Your Network Podcast. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to the show. Today, I have a special treat for you guys. Um, this guy is got to be one of my favorite authors that I've ever read. I say this in the show, but his book is his book is easily top five on my all-time business list. I've read a lot of sales stuff. I've read a lot of different negotiation tactics and techniques from different books, authors, thought leaders, and uh, different closing material and all of the above, really just through the door-to-door -door career that I had before this. And I can tell you right now that this guy wrote my favorite book that I've ever read on any of those topics. And that book's called Never Split the Difference. So this guy is a 24-year veteran of the FBI, and he retired as the lead international kidnapping negotiator there. So now he draws on that experience in high-stakes negotiations, and he has a company called Black Swan that specializes in solving business communication problems using hostage negotiation solutions. So the guest today is none other than Chris Voss. 
And man, I cannot explain to you how much of a difference his book, Never Split the Difference, has made in my own career, in my own business. And I highly recommend it to anybody out there listening. So there's so many awesome things that we talk about in this episode, and it doesn't even scratch the surface of what's included in his book. So I highly recommend that you check that out. But just a few things that we talk about that you can expect to listen to shortly is what to do when someone is haggling over price with you. The most important tool that's in a negotiator's tool belt and the only people in life that you should ever take advice from. So I cannot wait to share the content from today's episode with you guys. But uh, in the meantime, really quick, if you want to know how I've been able to create and maintain relationships with people like Chris and some of the other awesome guests I've had on the show, I can tell you right now that it's all thanks to this podcast. If I didn't start a podcast, there's zero chance that I would know as many awesome people as I do now. And look, it's the perfect credibility vehicle and the best value adding excuse to connect with people that you really truly want to connect with. So I highly recommend starting a show, but doing it the right way. Last I heard 90% of podcasters never make it past episode seven. So if you want to be on the right side of that statistic, do what I did. Hire a coach, someone that's been there, done that, can walk you through the process. And yes, that is something that I currently do. In the last few months, I've helped several people get their shows off the ground, and I'd love to do the same for you. If any of this resonates with you at all, then please head over to travischapelcom slash coaching to apply. I only accept a couple people at a time because I don't want anyone lost in the process, and I'll only be doing this for just a little while longer. So be sure to apply over at travischapelcom slash coaching if you're serious about getting started and we will chat really soon. And now here is my conversation with Chris Voss. Chris Voss, welcome to the show, man. Thanks so much for taking the time. I was happy to be here, man. Thanks for having me on. Yes, sir. So I want to kind of go a little bit back here and build some context for everybody listening. You've had a tremendous career in like FBI hostage negotiations, different things like that. And I can't wait to jump into that part of the conversation. But first, tell me what life was like growing up as little Chris Voss. <laughs> you know, small town Midwestern guy. My father had, a, had his own business. He was an entrepreneur, very blue collar guy, very blue collar business. Uh, grew up working for my dad, um, an, what was called an oil jobber, like the middleman between the major oil company at the time it was Shell and uh, gas stations and small farms or large farms and small industries. And so the family business, we, we were working, figuring stuff out, getting the job done from as far back as I could remember. Midwestern blue collar values. Yeah. So you were working from the time that you can even remember speaking. Pretty much. Yeah. You know, I mean, my dad had his business and I had three sisters, one older and two younger. And, you know, he figured if he had to feed us and <laughs> we had to pull, <laughs> you know, we had to help. I remember cleaning my dad's office as a kid, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's about how I was raised as well. It was always something to do around the house that uh, seemed like I, I was the one to pick up those opportunities. Do you think that that really helped shape your work ethic growing up? Yeah, completely. I mean, combination of two things, having a work ethic at all, getting up and getting after it. And then um, my dad was a very much figured out kind of guy. So he'd give you a task and tell you to figure it out. And I mean, he was, I he had me running a jackhammer when I was about 11 years old. So <laughs> just had to figure it out. Yeah. You know, my, and my, my son and I, my son, uh, I started sending my son to the Midwest to be with my parents when he was very little. From about age six on, my son would work for my dad in the summers. And we used to always joke about uh, 
My father never asked you to do anything he wouldn't do himself. He never asked anybody to work for him to do anything he wouldn't do himself. However, there wasn't anything that was above him. So you work for a guy who's willing to get, get the job done no matter how dirty, how nasty, how hard it could be, then there's no excuse for not stepping up and getting the job done. And then, so it was, it was a good place to grow up. Yeah. And coming out of that into like, you know, high school, college age, was there a big pressure on you to go to college or was it kind of up to you? Was it like, Hey, I'm going to join the family business. Now, you know, it was, it was expected that we would go to college. I mean, I think, you know, my dad went to college, although the Marines paid for him going to college. And I just, you know, he kind of had a deal with all his kids. I will pay for four years of college. You don't graduate, that's your problem, but I'll fund you for four years and then, and then you're out of the house, you're on your own. So I just grew up expecting to go to college. My mom went to college I grew, and we, we went and, you know, I expected it then to be on my own after that. So it's a pretty straightforward deal. There's a certain amount of money the old man staked each one of us to each semester. And if you underspent it, you kept it. If you overspent it, you know, go out and find a job. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like, like, like hiring a, a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is uh, the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is, is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. So during that time, was there a lot of thought in your head as, as to what you were actually going to be doing with the rest of your life? Or was it a totally different career path that ended up shifting into what you ended up doing? Well, it shifted substantially, but from about my mid-teens on, I, w- I knew I wanted to be in law enforcement. My dad was a very direct guy, kind of difficult to get along with, uh, very demanding. So, yeah, you know, it was, I knew from an early age that I wasn't going to be happy working with him. So I saw this movie when I was in my teens about a couple of cops in New York City. It was called the Super Cops. And these guys, it was true story, two cops who 
through a lot of bad guys in jail and were very creative, innovative, had a great time. The community loved them. They worked in Bed-Stuy back when Bed-Stuy was a really dangerous place. And they did a lot of good and they were very creative. And I was attracted to that. So initially I was going to be a cop. I did not expect to end up being an FBI. So how did that all come out? Come about? Well, uh, after having graduated college and went out and got a degree that, or got a job that only required a high school degree, you know, my father encouraged me to go into federal law enforcement because he just staked me to four years of college. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> uh, you know, so he finally accepted the fact that I was going to be in law enforcement. And he encouraged me to look at this. He knew a guy that was in the Secret Service. He encouraged me to look at the Secret Service. You know, back then, we didn't know one alphabet letter federal agency from another. You know, it was all federal law enforcement. So I talked to this Secret Service guy, and he told me about that the Secret Service had sent him all over the world. And I, I'm from Iowa. I, you know, I'd seen Canada from a distance. That was the extent of my international travel. So the thought that somebody was going to pay to send me all over the world you know, I didn't know it, but I had some gypsy in me. And I thought, all right, yeah, I could dig this. You know, I'd, I'd travel in the world would be a cool gig. And as, as fate would have it, the Secret Service was not hiring. The FBI was. Again, I had no idea that there was a diff, much of a difference. And I got into the FBI, and it was, it was awesome. It was perfect for me. So what did you start out doing then? Well, they start you out, they move you back then. The first thing they wanted to do when they hired you was make you start your life over as an FBI agent. I mean, becoming an FBI agent in society is a kind of a step and they wanted you to start over. So they uprooted you from wherever you were from. Sent me to Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh was a cool town. I had a great time there. At the time, the policy was also to move everybody onto the large offices. They were having trouble staffing the large offices, New York in particular. Two years in Pittsburgh, on to New York. New York ended up being a wild and crazy ride. I loved every minute of it. Had a ball in New York City. Got on the hostage negotiation team there, worked terrorism, worked with great people, worked with New York City cops, partners were cops, had a great time. And it was, it was a great ride. New York was, it was an amazing time. Would you say that you had a knack for negotiation? Like, how did you end up there? Because a lot of people go into the FBI and don't end up in the hostage negotiation field. So where, like, what was that for you? I didn't plan it at all. I mean, I was, uh, I, yes, I would say I had a knack for it. Did I ever imagine being there? No. I wanted to be on the SWAT team. I was on a SWAT team, Pittsburgh FBI. I was in a process of trying out for the, Navy, uh, the Bureau's version of the Navy SEALs, the hostage rescue team, and re-injured my knee. We had hostage negotiators. I didn't know what they did. It sounded, it looked easy. It was a bit of a challenge getting on the hostage negotiation team at all. I was initially rejected because I was eminently unqualified. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I actually love that part of the book, though, because what did you do after they rejected you? Yeah, well, you know, some of the best guidance I ever received, I didn't receive here until probably about 10 years ago, but never take advice from anybody you wouldn't trade places. With. And I would expand it to, yeah, or if they're in charge of where you want to be. So I went to the woman who was in charge of the hostage negotiation team for the FBI in New York, and she rejected me. I was unqualified. And she said, look, everybody wants to do this. It sounds sexy. You got no qualifications. Go away. And I said, what could I do? I asked for her advice, what to do. And she said, go volunteer on a suicide hotline. Now you tell you've done that, go away. And I did. And I came back to her about five months later and said, you know, I want you to know I've been on the hotline for about three months. And she was shocked. And I was shocked that she was shocked. And um, this is, uh, it's in the book, you know, Amy Bondaro. And 
I got back to Amy when we published a book because I had to have her permission to put her name in the book. And she said, you know, I told a thousand people to do that. And two people did. And you were one of them. So crazy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's stupid. But there were a couple of real key turning points in my life where I went to somebody that I would trade places with. I asked advice and I followed it. And they were key turning points. I mean, it's it also, as it turned out, it's kind of how I got into the FBI. I went to an onboard agent and asked him, how do I get ready? And I listened. And there's no shortage of people that will take that you will give advice to, but they won't follow. You know, there's two problems. Who did you ask for advice? I got a lot of bad advice that I was stupid enough to follow through the course of my life. And in hindsight, I wasn't asking the right guy. So, you know, never take advice from anybody you wouldn't trade places with. And I would add to that criticism is the most cowardly form of advice. So if your critic is not somebody you would trade places with, their advice is worth what it costs you, <laughs> which is probably nothing. <laughs> Love it, man. So you get advice to go volunteer at a suicide highlight. So you're not actually getting paid for this. You just spend your evenings hopping on phone calls and trying to talk to suicidal people? Pretty much. I mean, you know, I had, I had to find a hotline. You know, it was back when there was such a thing called phone books. And phone books were actually, you know, before the internet, the phone book was an investigative tool. I had learned that. I had an internship with uh, an Iowa law enforcement agency when I was in college. And there was a smart detective there said, anytime you start hunting for somebody, you grab this baby first. First place you look is a phone book. Sounds stupid. But it is. And so when Amy told me to volunteer on a suicide hotline, I went to the phone book. I looked up the word suicide, didn't find anything. I thought, well, if you're suicidal, you're calling for help. I looked up the word help, found helpline. As it turned out, one of the first crisis hotlines, not suicide, but crisis, founded in the United States by Norman Vincent Peale, the power positive thinking guy. I went up there and, and volunteered. You know, they, they interviewed to make sure you're not crazy. <laughs> they put us through some phenomenal training some of the best training I'd ever gotten on emotional intelligence. We didn't call it that then, but that's what it was. Applied emotional intelligence. Learned a ton about how to interact with people and establish influence quickly. And then everything has flowed from there, from that point on. I mean, crisis hotline. There's some industries today, like I don't understand why their people don't volunteer on suicide hotlines every week. Yeah, I was going to say, would you, you, you would still obviously give that advice to somebody that's looking to go down a similar career path to what you did? Yeah, or just communication in general. I mean, one of my students at Georgetown, when I was teaching at the business school there, you know, she was intrigued by it. So she decided to do an independent study on the facts of empathy in business. And she went and volunteered on the hotline and then studied her business interactions and did a legitimate study. And her conclusion of the study was empathy saves time. And she has since become very active in, in helping people understand empathy and business relationships. And she did the same thing I did. I mean, your original question was, how did I go? I found a hotline. I volunteered at night. I FBI agent by day, suicide hotline, trainee, volunteer. Initially, the training was once a week for two months, Monday nights, four hours at a crack. And then after that, you volunteer for two shifts a month. And they ask you to stay for a year. And I, I stayed for three and then I got involved in their, in their board too. I got involved at all levels. So at what point did you actually get onto the hostage negotiation team at the FBI? And do you remember like the first real hostage negotiation that you actually got to work? Well, it was about a year and a half after I had volunteered on the hotline. 
And I remember going through the training at Quantico and listening to actual hostage negotiation tapes while they were training us and thinking to myself, I've been doing this for a year and a half. I just didn't have a SWAT team outside. So um, the first weekend I was out, I missed an opportunity. You know, and they told us, and I learned a lot about self-initiation then too. And again, this whole advice thing, because I get back to New York and I'm watching TV that weekend and, and there's a woman that has driven right through the front gate of the UN and she's claimed that she's doused herself with gasoline. She's going to set herself on fire. I'm looking at this on TV and I don't know whether or not I should show up. You know, do I go unasked, uncalled for, unannounced? And so I, I called the guy that was my supervisor at the time, who, who was not in charge of the hostage negotiation team, a real reluctant kind of a guy. And he said, did anybody call you? And again, advice from somebody, because while he was my supervisor, he wasn't in charge of the negotiation team. So I wouldn't trade places with him on this issue. And I said, no, nobody called me. And he said, well, you know, I don't know. I, I wouldn't go. So I didn't go. And Monday I, I get to work and, and I find Amy and she had been out of touch over the weekend. Nobody called her. She didn't know anything about it. And I said, what should I have done? She said, go. She said, always go. Don't ask anybody. Go. Respond. People can always use your help. So then, you know, I blew my opportunity right out of the gate. About a year and a half after that, I'm in the office and there's a bank robber in Brooklyn. And one of the guys on the team comes up and he says, there's a bank robber in Brooklyn. Let's go. Now we had, I had an interview scheduled that day, which was going to ended up being a significant interview, but I, I had asked my partner to cover for me, more than capable NYPD detective. I said, Tom, you gotta, you gotta cover for me on this interview. He covers for me and, and Charlie and I head to the bank uncalled for. They do not reach out for us in any way, shape or form. And we get there and they are glad that we are there. They are more than happy to have people show up who want to get involved. We ended up, um, Blending the negotiation team with the FBI and the NYPD. Uh, NYPD commander, Hugh McGowan, brilliant dude, takes over as on-scene negotiation commander. Our coordinator takes over the negotiations on the face-to-face -face on the inner perimeter. You know, we're in the bank where the command post is. Puts an NYPD detective on first, puts me on as his coach. I coach the guy for about five, six hours. They make a move a few hours in to put me on the phone. And a bad guy on the other end of the line is tailor-made for my suicide hotline magic. You know, my hostage negotiation, emotional intelligence skills. I get this guy out about 90 minutes later, and then that was the thread that we needed. We unraveled it. There were three hostages inside, two bad guys. We, by 8.30 that night, we had everybody out. Wow. That's amazing. Not to uh, cheapen the seriousness of the situation, but... How awesome did you feel like rolling up onto the scene as like a trained FBI hostage negotiator? I feel like I would be like super stoked inside. I, I would probably have a straight laced face on to be like, I'm confident I know what I'm doing. But as your first real hostage negotiation and you roll up there, what can you explain how you were feeling? Nah, you know, I mean, and we're ready. I felt ready. I felt I've been working on the process. I mean, as a phrase that we use these days, you don't rise to the occasion, you fall to your highest level of preparation. And my prep was good. I'd been on a hotline for over a year and a half. We'd actually, it was, that year was one of the craziest years for law enforcement in the United States and in New York City. The year started out with a hijacking of a, of a Lufthansa jet. It was the first hijacking to come into New York City in over 17 years. That was how the year started. That was February 19th, February 26th, the World Trade Center blows up. 
we start working on an active terrorism case, an active terrorism threat in New York at the time where we know the bad guys. Al-Qaeda is looking at four locations in New York City. We're on top of the Al-Qaeda guys when Waco gets underway. The siege with the Branch Davidians gets started at about the same time. That thing goes down in April. And that goes down, two prison sieges get started. Uh, one in Lucasville, Ohio. I can't remember where the other one was. We aren't even halfway through the year. We roll up our terrorists that we're going to blow up the four locations in June of that year. We take these guys down. We, we take them out in a safe house at about 1.30 in the morning on June the 24th. That gets more involved and elaborate as the summer goes on. And so by the time this bank robbery happened in September, I mean, it just, this is just one more crazy thing in a year that was terrorists, prison sieges, domestic terrorists, international terrorist bombings. I mean, it was a wild year. So by the time we got to the bank in, in September, it's just like one more crazy event that we were on top of in New York. We, we stayed out in front of everything. Yeah. Right. So coming out of that first situation, was there a time where during your career you were like, man, I am outgunned here. I don't know how this situation went south. And then what did you do to kind of fix that situation? Well, stuff goes south. You don't always see it coming. You believe in a process, you prepare, you get ready, you work as a team. So the mistakes are never yours alone. And you know, the straw that broke the camel's back, there was more than one straw on the camel's back. So there's never one fatal error. You know, a lot of people miss, a lot of stuff led up to how, whatever metaphor you want to use, tipping point, the straw that broke the camel's back, everything is cumulative. So that being said, there is a kidnapping, and I talk about it in the book, where we thought we were going to get the hostages out, and it went bad, and it turned into just an ugly train wreck. And finally, at the end of it, there was a botched rescue attempt by the Philippine national, the Philippine military, and hostages got killed. And we thought we were going to get the hostages out about a month before this botched rescue attempt. Now, when that went down, and we, it had been ugly for about two or three weeks, but we didn't know the hostages were going to get killed by the good guys, by friendly fire. So when that was over, that was, you know, that was a low point. I remember getting the call, and one of the hostages that got killed was Martin Burnham. I remember getting the call at 5.30 in the morning that Martin Burnham had been killed. You know, that was, that was a low point. Not as low as it was for his family, but it was, it was definitely a low point. And, and at that point in time, I was running our international operations, and I had a team of really smart people around me, and I knew that we'd done everything we knew how to do. So that was when I decided we need to go learn from Harvard, and that we started to establish relationships with the Harvard program on negotiation then, because my theory was if we did everything we knew to the best of our ability and it wasn't enough, then the only answer was to get better. That's when we started to collaborate with Harvard and, and work on improving, raising the level of our game. What's up, everyone? Just wanted to take a quick second and give a shout out to my favorite podcasting app, Himalaya. If you're not listening to podcasts on this new app, you're definitely missing out. It's like a social media app, but for podcast listeners. Follow your go-to shows, like and comment on your favorite episodes, and download professionally curated playlists made just for you. So head on over to your app store or Google Play store and download Himalaya today and thank me later. Was there any like real big lessons that you took away from uh, starting to work with Harvard? Like what are one or two 
tactics or um, practices that you took away from starting to learn from people like that as well? You know, I got to tell you, we were on what we were doing. We were farther down the line than they were. I mean, the the biggest gratification there was they were just getting started on what we used to call active listening skills. And our skill set was far more defined than theirs was. And I think, you know, to some degree, that's probably a shortcoming of an academic environment because in an academic environment, they have a tendency to speak about philosophies in general terms and philosophical underpinnings. And it's not unusual to have a Harvard instructor say, well, there's, there's so much here. It's very rich material. And you can't say that to a cop. You're teaching a police officer who's got a very practical problem in front of him. He wants real specific answers. So we had come from teaching law enforcement where it's a tough audience. You better give them a straight answer, tell them exactly how to do something. You know, it's like a a plumber fixing a pipe. A plumber doesn't want to know about the theory of water pressure. He wants to know where to put the wrench to get the water to shut off. And, you know, it's a very blue collar layman's approach. So, you know, what am I babbling about? What I'm babbling about is we had had much more specifically defined hostage negotiation skills that applied specifically to business than the Harvard guys did. They agreed with us on some really important points, which was gratifying to us because we knew that they were smarter than we were. And one thing that they, we agreed completely on was the definition of empathy and that empathy was not sympathy. Empathy was not agreement. Empathy is not compassionate. To use empathy is a very compassionate thing to do. But it's not weakness, it's not agreement, it's not sympathy. And when I saw that, that they defined it like that, I knew we were on the right track. I, I knew we believed in the same things. Yeah, so can you talk a, bit, a little bit about tactical empathy, which is, I think, what you, what you call it in, in the book, and how that really plays into any real negotiation, and not even just negotiation, just communication in general? Yeah, if you want influence with somebody, and some of this is stuff we've been taught for years, but we just didn't know it. You got to hear them out. You got to sound them out. You got to let them know they've been heard. I mean, the cliche Stephen Covey advice seek first to understand, then be understood. Seek first to show understanding in order to be understood. I mean, the quickest way to get your point across is to clear the other person's head. And you, the minute they feel heard, their head clears. They stop focusing on making sure you heard what they had to say. And consequently, their brain just opens up and is. They're eminently influenceable at that point. So empathy is just demonstrating to the other side what it is about they said, what they've said that you get. There's no doubt in their mind that you get it because you told them what they're trying, the point they're trying to make. And how does that play into labeling? Like, with, are those somewhat similar activities, or how would you break that down? Yeah, well, labeling uh, starts out as a demonstration of understanding of not what they said, but how they feel about it, or what's driving them, what their motivations are. And most people are, are their, their motivations are either hidden or blind. So when you start calling them out in the open, it actually creates this kind of really strange bonding effect between the two of you, and it opens them up to influence. Now, what we call labeling in hostage negotiation, we called emotion labeling, and I thought it was the least applicable skill from hostage negotiation. I didn't have much use for it. I knew it was ridiculously influential in, in, on the crisis hotline and on hostage negotiation, but I didn't think it would make much difference in business. As it turns out, it's actually our most valuable skill in our business negotiations, and we changed the dynamic with this 
skill we refer to as labels, which seems innocuous, which is one of the reasons it's so effective because it kind of blows past people's defense mechanisms and we use it to get them to say stuff they would never say otherwise. So can you give me an example of what that would sound like? Like pick up just a situation that somebody listening to this show might be sitting in, in some sort of a business transaction where they could actually apply this idea of labeling. All right. So there's a go-to label that will work for you no matter what the circumstances are. And it is, seems like you've given that a lot of thought. Now, in any, you're going to be able to use that no matter, somebody could be attacking you. You cheated me. You didn't live up to your end of the bargain. Your company overcharges. You look at them, you say, seems like you've given us a lot of thought. They're going to lay out in intimate detail what they're talking about. Now, you're, what's that contrasted to? Let's say that you're actually trying to find out where they're coming from. A good opening question might be, what happened? What makes you say that? Now, there's a problem. As soon as you ask somebody any kind of a question, their guard goes up to some degree. And they want to stop and think. I mean, a good what question makes people stop and think. Now, what you really want from them is an unvarnished stream of consciousness. You don't want them to stop and think. You want them to think, to talk without thinking about what they're saying. Because that's when they start revealing stuff to you that they might not otherwise give you if their guard is up. So we're trying to get people to respond to us in a really unguarded fashion. And what we found is questions cause people's guards to go up, which means no matter how good of an answer they give you, they're holding stuff back. And that's why you use at the beginning, you said it seems like, right? Because you don't want to make it, you don't want to say that this is what you're portraying to me. You just want to say it in a general sense of maybe somebody listening that isn't even a part of this conversation. It would seem this way, right? Is that kind of the gist? Right, right. You kind of actually, you bypass part of the brain and get a much clearer stream of consciousness because what happens when you say it seems like, or it looks like, or it sounds like, or it feels like, people then start thinking about your observation and then they start thinking out loud and they start, they give you their stream of consciousness. Right. It's not accusatory if you say it that way. It's not accusatory and it also... Some people's guard goes up, like I can pose it as a question. It seems like you've given us a lot of thought. Now, the tonality is questioning. But since I started out with seems like, it immediately starts to trigger people, especially people who are averse to talking at all. I mean, it's one of the, one of our clients calls it unlocking the floodgates of truth talk because it just gets people talking. Incredible. How important, since you brought up tonality, I know you talk about the 738-55 rule in the book. Can you explain what that means really quickly and talk about the importance of tonality and body language? Well, you know, there's all sorts of data out there that indicates the impact of tonality. And they, you know, they say the non-content, other than the definition of the words, how much communication is other than the words, how much is body language, how much is tone of voice. Some people will say up to 90%, 93%. You know, very few people will peg it at less than 60%. But no matter what, the ratios are always four or five to one tonality. And most people get tonality wrong. Like, I may lay out a proposition for you, and I may try to say, does this work for you? And I, my tone of voice says, this works for you, and if you don't see it that way, you're an idiot. Or I could say, does this work for you? What does this work for you? 
you know, I put my tonality in two different spots there as if I was actually asking. I said it three different ways. I used the exact same words. One of them was impatient, judgmental. The other two were inquiring and genuinely curious. And you get three completely different reactions. And you start beginning to choose your tonality and your inflection. You'd be shocked with what you can get away with saying to people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've since reading the book, basically been implementing a lot of these different things and even a lot of my emails and um, conversations, some difficult conversations that I've had to have with people where there's been a lack of agreement or a lack of execution on an agreement. And it's incredible how some of these tools and tactics disarm people who are coming at you. People who you think are you thinking like there's zero chance that this guy's going to be reasonable at any time soon. And then literally just saying one or two of these things. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, we're, oh, we're talking again. We're normal people again. Like that, that level of rage is just taken down instantly by applying just a little bit of tactical empathy and labeling their emotions for them. And then all of a sudden just like, oh, okay, now we can talk. Now the guard's down. Now let's have a conversation. And it's, it's just incredible to me. So one of, one of my favorite things that you talk about is calibrated questions, calibrated statements. Can you tell me about when you first realized that these were a really powerful tool to use? Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of suspect that it was going back to this kidnapping where things went bad. You know, I couldn't completely understand how they had gone bad, what we had done wrong, what we need to do better. And at about the same time, um, one of the, uh, I stumbled across Jim Camp's book, Start With No. And Jim Camp was very much into, he calls them interrogatives, but they're open-ended questions. But he refines the list down. He really sticks to mostly what question. He doesn't say this per se. In his book, and I ended up working with Jim, both Jim and his son, and had a great relationship with both of them. And I thought both were brilliant. But he really narrows it down to what questions. So in our kidnapping, I had known that somebody got our hostages on the phone. And that's a proof of life move. And no kidnapping negotiator I worked with had ever gotten anybody on the phone. And I remember thinking at the time, who did it? And how did they do it? And so then a couple of months after this had gone down and I'd run across Camp's book that focused on what and how questions, I'm listening to a drug dealer in Pittsburgh whose girlfriend had been kidnapped. And if you, somebody in your family has been kidnapped, who do you go to? You go to the FBI, even if you're a drug dealer. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so this drug dealer is driving around Pittsburgh with FBI hostage negotiators in his car. <laughs> Yeah, it sounded like a joke, right? Three drug dealers and two <laughs> hostage negotiators walk into a bar. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the drug dealer hasn't got all the sophisticated training. And so on his own, he asks a perfect how question, calibrated question, which is now what we call them. A question is calibrated for effect, calibrated to change the dynamic. And he says to the drug dealer that's got his girlfriend, he says, hey, dog, how do I even know she's alive? And there's this long silence on the other end of the line. You could just feel something getting ready to happen. And a drug dealer on the other end of the phone says, I'll, I'll put her on the phone. Now, not only have they just negotiated getting a hostage on the phone, which I have never done up to that point, but it was untrained guys. And But the tonality was that the power dynamic shifted completely in that moment. And the guy that asked the how question now had the upper hand, and the guy with the hostage had lost the upper hand, 
and he didn't know that he lost the upper hand. That was the key. And I remember hearing a couple of years later, somebody said to me, yeah, the secret to gaining the upper hand in, in a negotiation is giving the other side the illusion of control. And I said to myself, that is exactly what we do with how and what questions. We calibrate them so that we will gain the upper hand and the other side has no idea what we've just done to them. And that was really the beginning of appreciating what those did. Yeah, I love this kind of stuff, man, because in business, I feel like there's this camp of people who believe that to be a good negotiator, you have to just be the hardest, coldest person in the room. And I love that we talk about this kind of stuff because in those situations, there's a clear loser and a clear winner. And nobody likes to lose. I don't care who you are. And so if you are the kind of person that just bullies people into doing what you want them to do, then that's just going to hurt your reputation long term and prevent you from continuing to be able to do business in the way that you want to do it. However, if you use some of these different tactics and employ them correctly, then you can have the upper hand in a lot of negotiations while letting the other side think that they also got a really good deal. And most of the time, they probably are meeting in the middle on some sort of like a not meeting in the middle in terms of the pricing, but meeting meaning that there is an equal value, equal exchange of value. And both sides can leave winners and you let the other side believe those things with using some of these different tools. I'm curious how you would help somebody again, let's like make I'm all about the the philosophies and then the FBI stories as well. But a majority of people listening to this are in business. So how can we and I know that this is what you do now. So how can we use calibrated questions in a business negotiation where you're not asking for proof of life and different things like that? Yeah, you know, it should be the first way you say no. If you're in any negotiation and the other side is either making it difficult on you or you got to test them. You're testing them for firmness in their position and either tempted to say no or you have to say no. Before you say no, you should say, how am I supposed to do that? You say it with deference. You say it, you don't say it as an accusatory, you know, tonality. You don't say, how am I supposed to do that? Because your tone of voice says, you idiot. You know, you say it with deference. There's great power in deference. How am I supposed to do that? I mean, that buys you time. It's one of the biggest things people learn the fastest from the book. It's the first story in the book, laying that out. And I will tell you that we have so many emails from people that said just learning that has so changed their success rate in business that they're killing it. They think they want to, they should work on our staff. They're doing so well. A lot of negotiation is getting people to see your side, right? So what better way to do that than saying, how am I supposed to do that when they have to then put themselves in your shoes and actually try to figure out for you how you're supposed to be able to do that, right? Is that that's basically the whole idea. That's exactly what happens. And even if they don't give you an inch, it makes them stop and look at you. It makes them stop and think. And it feels very collaborative to them. They feel like they're in charge because people love to be asked how to do something. I mean, it appeals to their ego in an insane way. And you gain so many psychological advantages. And at a bare minimum, you force them to take a look at your situation, which buys you latitude and so many other levels. Most of the time, there were no shortage of stories where people say contractor cut his price by 50% on the spot. They adjusted the terms on the spot. It's astonishing how effective it is. 
Yeah. How much of that do you think is the fact that most people, I would say by and large, are uncomfortable in any sort of a negotiation situation and using a question like that might get them to change terms because they want out of the uncomfortable situation? Do you think that that plays into it at all? No, you know, we're not really into putting the other side into discomfort, if you will. And I'm not sure that that's it. I mean, I agree on every other point that you make. I think the people are uncomfortable with a lot of negotiations. I think desire to be comfortable again is so strong that it's actually counterproductive. People would rather be comfortable than successful. People would rather be comfortable than be healthy. Comfort food is generally why many of us are overweight. You know, you are eating for comfort in the moment. I mean, when I'm really down, I probably go eat a whole entire pizza by myself. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, yeah. comfort comfort is a is a big driver of of human behavior. But how am I supposed to do that? What that really does, it changes the the dynamic. Not really so that they're uncomfortable in a negotiation, but they it kicks in fairness and the fairness gene in the other side. It kicks in a lot of other good things that you want for a good, solid, long-term collaboration. It kicks in, we're driving for forced collaboration, where the other side collaborates and feels good about it, because we got to collaborate to have a great outcome, because you got to collaborate to implement your deal. There's no way around collaboration. I don't care what, I don't care what your deal is. you got to collaborate to implement, whether you like it or not. And we're, we're setting ourselves up for, for the post-agreement implementation. So I'm not sure that we're really making the other side uncomfortable. That's that's not our plan in, in that move. Got it. Got it. Okay. So there's one other thing. Uh, we're, we're running out of time already. I could talk to you literally about this stuff for, for a really long time because it's what fires me up. But we're running out of time. I want to make sure we talk about this one other thing. And then I definitely want to make sure we chat about networking because it's been sprinkled throughout this entire conversation. So I'm looking forward to chatting about that. So there's one other thing that I want to make sure that I cover. And by the way, if you're listening to this right now and you're thinking, wow, that was really good then uh, you should definitely stop hesitating and head over to Amazon or wherever you buy books immediately and get a copy of Chris's book, Never Split the Difference. I was telling him before I hit record, it's easily top five business books that I've ever read and probably the best sales book that I've ever read. And I've done a lot of stuff in sales with my background in door-to-door sales and training and everything that I used to do. So definitely go pick up a copy of this book because we haven't even scratched the surface of all of the things that all of the amazing tools and strategies that are in this book. So, But I did want to touch on this one really quick, Chris. When people start to haggle with you, when they're focusing purely on price and they're trying to do that, well, I was thinking this much. And then you go, well, I was thinking this much. And they're like, okay, well, what if we did this? And then you go, what if we did this? And then all of a sudden you're like, keep haggling on this price. What do you do to get out of that situation? Yeah. And and, and as a caveat, I will tell you, we got a bargaining system in the book called the Ackerman method. But in point of fact, we don't bargain over price anymore. Because if you're haggling with me over price, either you don't think the value's there or somebody you work for doesn't think the value's there. So somebody in your company could be putting a lot of pressure on you. I'm going to shift to that. If you got a problem with price, again, by definition, the value's not there for you. So if the value ain't there for you, me cutting a price is still not solving your problems. So I'm going to shift again to, all right, so if you say that's too expensive, I'll say it sounds like the value is not there for you. And we'll immediately go talk about what's wrong with the product, the implementation, the deal, the terms, everything other than price. If you're haggling over price, you're talking about the wrong thing in the negotiation. And nobody that we advise, I was on the phone with a security company the other day. It was one of his clients wanted to haggle with them over price. 
I said, man, do not cut your price. They're, they're either haggling with you because it's a game and they're okay with the price. They just want to haggle, which means you shouldn't cut the price. Or they're haggling with you because there's a service problem they're unhappy with and cutting your price is not going to address the service problem. Either Whichever of those two things it is, it's not a price issue. It's a delivery issue or they just, they're bored. And you got to find out which one it is and you got to address it, but do not cut your price. So nobody out there should haggle over their price. If, so, if there's price pressure on you, the answer is better service. The answer is better implementation. If you believe that you should over deliver, and if you live by those words, then whatever you're charging is a bargain and don't cut the price. Yeah, I love that. I literally used this the other, well, probably a month or two ago now because I we I was renting out this Airbnb this luxury villa that I flew a bunch of people out to and um, we had I had this destination mastermind retreat there and I was talking with the owner of the villa and we had some agreed upon terms before we got there and then all of a sudden we got there and then terms were changing it was going to be way more expensive than we originally agreed on and I remember going down to talk to him and I had this in my head the whole time and he was trying to do the haggling thing and clearly in my head was like he was definitely going for the price which is like this is how much that I want and instead of focusing on the price, I just shifted the conversation to talking about terms. And I did that two or three times until he voluntarily came down to the price that I was thinking in my head the whole time. And as soon as he did that, it was like, you know what? I think that that sounds fair. Let's go ahead and just do that. So I'm telling you, if you're listening to this, you, you got to go pick up this book. It, it's going to be it's going to be a game changer for you. So Chris, I appreciate your time, man. I want to make sure we chat real quick about about networking because I think it's such a valuable thing. Anytime I talk to anybody who's achieved a certain level of success in life. When we go through the whole life story, which is why we do that at the beginning of the episode, I'm always looking for those little bits of networking and those things that are in there. And through your story, I can find a lot of different stories like that. Even just going to the first lady that recommended that you go to the the suicide hotline. And then you talked to the one guy who told you how to get into the FBI. And like every step along the way, you were reaching out to people who had been there, done that, bought the t-shirt, and you got knowledge from them that directly benefited you and allowed you to then fulfill what you what your goals were. So I want to ask you this because this is a question I ask everybody that comes on the show and I'm curious to hear your answer. Do you believe that who you know or what you know is more important and why? Uh, it's both. I get turned on to a woman in New York seven, eight years ago. She knew tons of people. She knew everybody. She was going to be a business consultant and she made a lot of great introductions and it went nowhere. She didn't know anything. She knew all these people. She didn't, what she didn't know was what they needed. You know, she had relationships. Yeah, I can introduce you to so-and-so. Well, uh, now when somebody offers to introduce me to somebody, my first question is, do they want to meet me? Do you know that they want what I'm bringing to the table? I don't care who you know, because that's a, a massive dead end. Now, if what you know fits, now who you know matters. Are you going to introduce me because you think we're a great match? Do you actually understand what the match is? Somebody wants to introduce me to somebody else. Oh, you are a hostage negotiator. You must want to meet hostage negotiators. No, I don't. You must, uh, let me tell you about Roger Dawson. You know, he's in our social circle. Roger Dawson uh, wrote a book called Power Negotiations. No, Roger sees me as a competitor. He's got brilliant stuff. We're competing for the same people. Roger doesn't want to meet me anymore. I want to meet him. You want to meet Robert Herjavec. He's got salespeople that he's training. Oh, now that's an introduction. 
But the introduction I got to Robert Herjavec was from someone who understood that I would be an asset to him. So it's, you know, it's both simultaneously, but who you know is useless without understanding what's the value of the introduction. Love it, man. Love it. Look, that I was not lying when I said I could talk to you about this for a few hours because I could just go through point by point in the book and give you situation after situation. But sadly, we are running out of time. So I want to move on to the last segment here. Something that's called the random round. Just a few really quick random questions with some quick random answers. You ready? Fire away. Is this, is there the Jeopardy music's playing in the background here? We had, you know, the oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> the whole thing. The whole thing. Right. <laughs> what? profession other than your own do you think that it would be fun to attempt some x games thing i mean something let me jump off mountaintops wingsuiting some you know something i yeah i would enjoy something along those lines doing backflipping motorcycles over buildings something like that (laughs) (laughs) perfect (laughs) if you could sit on a park bench with someone past or present and talk to them for an hour who would it be my father what's his point of view on what's important now that he's on the other side. Like, what am I bent out of shape about that I shouldn't be bent out of shape about? What would he still now, from his perspective, what was he right to be bent out of shape about and what should he have let go? That kind of stuff. How do you like to consume content? Books, audiobooks, blogs, podcasts, or videos? I prefer reading uh, real books. I like hardcover I like, and I like paper. What's something you've read recently that you'd recommend? Anything by Stephen Kotler. The Rise of Superman, Stealing Fire. He's got a novel coming out in May. Uh, most of his book is fiction. Shockingly, the guy wrote a heck of a nonfiction story. Last Tango in Cyberspace. He sent me a pre-publication copy, and that's a great thing. So I, I think whatever Stephen Kotler has, has put his hand to Give us a glimpse of your morning routine. Try to get my mind right. You know, we got to get your mind right. That's a, a movie from way back when, Cool Hand Luke. You know, you got to get your mind right. You know, I try, I try to do some gratitude exercises first thing in the morning. I try to be, try to be grateful that, I, that I'm on a planet at all. If I can do that, my day's going to be all right. What is your go-to pump-up song? You <laughs> uh, uh, too, Elevation. Love it. What is something that you are just not very good at? That's a long list. you know i'm not good at organization and i'm not good at extended focus ah extended focus i like that as we get everything wrapped up here chris what is one place online where we are going to be able to find you the most all right so um like as a uh, my resource or me as a resource yes your resource yep wow the firefox browser these days when you open it up, get you to, and I don't know if they're being fed from pocket, but there's a, there's usually a variety of news articles that are actually really thoughtful to read. They, they stream in from the Atlantic, from medium. They're doing a nice job of curating actually interesting stuff. That's out of the mainstream media. The mainstream media these days is all about rock throwing. You know, it's all real housewives of Beverly Hills in some degree or the, uh, the apprentice or whatever, whatever reality show where people are screaming at each other. And that is not, that the, the world is a much better place than that. And it's a much more thoughtful place. And I'm not, I'm not sure if this is coming up from pocket or if it's coming up from medium, but I do notice that if I find something actually thoughtful, it's coming up on my Firefox browser before I go someplace, as soon as I queue it up. So, and I think it's coming out of pocket. 
Got it. Got it. And then where can listeners connect with you the best? The best way um, is our newsletter, which is a, it's a complimentary negotiation newsletter. It's very concise. comes out on Tuesday mornings and it's a good price. It's free. Uh, it's the best, best price. That's <laughs> a good price. The free, I'll take three. <laughs> so uh, text to sign up function. Text to the number. The number you're texting to is 22828. And that's 22828. Send a message, FBI empathy, all one word, lowercase. Don't let your spell check put a space between FBI and empathy. FBI empathy sent to 22828. You get a, a dialogue box back. Ask for your email address. The newsletter is a gateway to everything. Training announcements, tons of free content. Takes you to the website, which is blackswanltd.com. But our newsletter is, is the gateway to everything that we do. Perfect. So the one thing that we didn't get to talk about is the Black Swan, which is uh, Chris's consultancy uh, agency or consultant agency that he has now. Um, there's an amazing story behind the whole idea of the Black Swan. So I am going to leave that out on purpose now to make everybody listening to this go get a copy of Chris's book because it's worth it just for that one thing. But I promise you, it'll be the best sales book that you've ever read. So head over to wherever you find books and and, and buy a copy of Never Split the Difference. And then uh, sign up for Chris's newsletter. He gives way more value than anything he asks for. So uh, make sure to shoot a text over to 22828 and make sure you text FBI Empathy to 22828 so that you can join up to Chris's newsletter. Chris, thanks so much for coming to the show today, man. Seriously, I had a blast uh, talking with you. I enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for having me on. Well, that's it for today's show. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you'd like to learn more about how we've been able to get some of the guests to come on the show, I've created a totally free resource called Meet Your Hero. So if you'd like to connect with people you respect and admire that are difficult to reach, you're going to want to go to travischapel.com slash hero to take action and start that training today. Have a wonderful rest of your day and remember to leave every relationship better than you found it. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.